I don't like fishing. I think it's kind of boring. I know that might sound like heresy to some of you, but I do like some boring things. I mean, I'll sit quite happily for about four hours watching a baseball game with relatively little action, and, um, I, which may be equivalent to, to cricket or, or something for you here, or a game of rounders, although it, people tell me it's like rounders. I'm t- friends, baseball is nothing like rounders, okay? Baseball is a great sport. Okay, I'll leave that from behind for now. But I think for me, fishing is the combination of kind of boring and a little gross. I remember the first time my grandpa took me out fishing. I must have been eight or nine years old. And, and I remember the first thing you have to do, right, is stick your hands into a small bucket of worms, okay? And then you take one of those worms and you impale it on a tiny spear, okay? That then you throw said worm and on impaled, uh, impaled on said spear and you throw it into the lake and you wait around for a few hours. Okay, so if this doesn't already sound fun to you, then finally the moment comes when you get a little tug, and most likely, if you're like me, um, that little tug does not mean you've caught a fish, it just means that the fish has stolen your bait, and you have to repeat the same process over again. But let's just say you do pull it in. This is what the eight-year-old version of myself distinctly remembers about fishing the first time my grandfather took me out. Trying to grab this slimy, smelly, convulsing fish. And I thought, this is fun? This is like trying to grab jelly out of my toilet. This is not fun. The fish clearly doesn't want to be here. I'm not getting any particular enjoyment out of catching this, taking this fish out of the water either. What stood out to me very clearly is that the fish does not like to be out of the water. Water is where the fish is free to swim, where the fish is free to breathe, actually, where, where the fish is free to play and where the fish is free to hunt for food. No one looks at a fisherman and says, what amazing work you do. Freeing those poor fishies from bondage to the sea. No, a fish isn't free outside of water, is it? A fish can't do what it's designed to do outside of the water. A fish can't be what it's designed to be outside of the water. The water isn't so much a restriction as, or it is a restriction, but it's it's a restriction that actually brings freedom to the fish, doesn't it? A fish out of water is not a good thing. A fish needs to be enveloped by water in order to flourish, and in order to thrive. Okay, silly example, right? But John wants us to know, in this passage, that a human, not swimming in the ocean of God's love, is a fish out of water. If you want to be free to flourish, if you want to be free to thrive, to love, to do good, to enjoy God and to enjoy his gifts, you must experience and you must bathe in the love of God. Each main point that you'll see, if you have that little worship program with you, each main point you see in your outline states that God loves frees us. 
When we experience God's love, his, his love actually changes us. God's love, you could say, creates a new environment in our soul in which we can be what we're designed to be and do what we're designed to do. Remember, John is writing in this letter, okay, so back, if you haven't been with us, John is writing in this letter to, to provide comfort, right, to, to a broken and, and fragile and confused local church. Because a group of, of false believers crept into this local church and they began spreading false teaching about who Christ was and, and about salvation. They offered a different gospel. And verse 13 of chapter 4 addresses a vital question. How can you know that God lives in you and that you live in God? Notice, John could have asked, right? John could have asked, how do you know you're a Christian? But he, he doesn't. I mean, that's what he's getting at, but he, 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 he goes at it through a more central and more, more in a bigger way. He, he wants to know, how do you know God lives in you? A few weeks ago, I mentioned an old Scottish minister named Henry Scougal, and he, he, he wrote a great little book called The Life of God and the Soul of Man. And, and in this book, he, he, won, he sets out to, to see what is true religion. Okay, and he says in there, based on, on, on the book of John and on 1 John, he says true religion is not merely believing true things. Okay, it's not merely believing, assenting to true things. It's not merely doing good things. Those, of course, accompany true religion, right? True religion is God invading your heart and performing a, a spiritual heart transplant. It is God making his heart your heart. His desires, your desires. And all of this happens in, in some mysterious way because he lives in you and you in him. This is, John, this is what John's getting at. That, that's precisely how John answers in verse 13. He's given you his spirit. How do you know God lives in you? He's given you his spirit. And the spirit isn't some abstract thing. Why? Because you know if the spirit's in you, because the spirit produces a testimony, verse 14 and 15, that Jesus is the son of God and the savior of the world. And this testimony, okay, is evidence that the spirit of God is in you. Okay, so I want to unpack this a little bit. The, the gift of the Spirit is God taking residence in your own soul. And when God takes residence in your own soul, your very nature changes. What is central to God becomes central to us. What defines the character of God defines our character. What motivates God motivates us. What angers God angers us. What God delights in, we delight in. That's the kind of spiritual heart transplant we're talking about. He gives us a new nature, a new set of desires. So it's no surprise that John goes back to this one thing. Okay, God is in us. What are we like? How do we know God lives on us? He starts with this. God is love. The fact that God is in you and the fact that God is love forms the foundation for everything he's going to say in this passage, okay? The fact that God is in you 
And the fact that God is love forms the foundation of what he's going to say. To, to boil it down, where God resides, God shows up. If the God of love resides in your heart, then the love of God is going to flow out of your heart. It's, as Ian said last week, this is less of a command, the love of God, than just a consequence. It's a fish swimming in water. It does it by nature. So last week we reflected on what it means for God to be love. Not just that God loves, but what does it mean for God to be love? I mean, I can say I love someone, but I, I don't often say I am love. In fact, I never say it. One part of that is that God, the, the love has its source in God. And this is precisely where God's love and our love is, is quite different, isn't it? Because love originates in the heart of God, but true love can only exist in our hearts when we experience God's love. It originates in God, but our love is, is always derivative of, of someone else. You see what John says, chapter 3, See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God. Okay, but what is this love? What is God's love? You might want to write this down if you're taking notes, because this is, I think, very important to understanding God's love. God's love is his delight in and his acting for the good of that which he delights in. Let me repeat that. God's love is his delight in and his acting for the good of that which he delights in. So, so Christian, what it means when he says God loves you, it means God delights in you and he is determined to act for your good. To be loved of God is to be the object of his delight and the recipient of his goodness. In this passage, that truth, to be the object of his delight and the recipient of his goodness, that truth has three implications, and that's the three points of this of, of this talk. Implication number one, experiencing God's love removes fear and gives confidence. It, implication number two, experiencing God's love removes hate and causes you to love God's family. And implication number three, experiencing God's love is going to cause you to love obeying God's commands. And we'll walk through in that order. So point number one, in verses 16 through 18, God's love frees us from fear and frees us to confidence. You'll notice in each one of these points, God, God's love frees us from something and to something. <clears throat> Let's read in chapter 4, verses 16, halfway through 16 and through 17, starting with the words, God is love. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. This is how love is made complete among us, so that we will have confidence in the day of judgment. In this world, we are like Jesus. So when, when God enters your life, you get caught up in his love. But what does it mean that God's love is completed in us? What, what does that mean? 
it means God's love is it's not static, okay? It's intended to transform us when we experience us. And and <clears throat> And what it means that God's love is completed is it means that God's love has a goal. And that the goal of God's love is achieved when it produces confidence in us before God on the day of judgment. And, and I, as crazy as it seems, this confidence stems from the fact that we love like Jesus loved when he was in this world. So let me, let me go, go back. Let me explain this. God's love for you will achieve its goal when you have confidence that God's judgment, future judgment, does not equal your destruction. And this confidence is a product of you living and loving like Jesus. Friends, John talks like almost no preacher talks. I mean, honestly, there were times this week when I thought, I I can't preach that. Am I to tell people to look at their lives for traces of Christ-likeness and Christ-like love so that they can be confident they're not going to face God's judgment? Shouldn't we never tell people to look inward in order to have confidence before God? I I don't think John wants you to be self-confident. That's not what he's saying. But it's not so much your actions that are bringing you confidence, is it? But I think John would say it's Christ formed in you that should bring you confidence. Meaning, a Christian should examine their heart for more than just sin. I think this is a bit groundbreaking. I think, when, when I think about examining my heart, I think about examining my heart to find sin and root it out and kill it. And that's a good thing. You find that all over the place. Paul talks about that, right? We want to examine our hearts because sin is aimed at destroying us and we want to get rid of it. But here you actually have John, I think, saying you need to examine your heart for traces of Christ in your life. I mean, examine yourself, not just to root out the negative stuff, but examine yourself to find God working, Christ showing up in the way you live and you love. But the enemy of confidence-producing love is fear. The enemy of confidence-producing love is fear. Verse 18. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears it is not made perfect in love. Okay, so if you have experienced God's love, You don't need to be afraid of God. Fear is a response to future judgment. And don't get me wrong, God's judgment is very real. Okay, when God reveals himself to Moses, this is an important point in uh, in the Old Testament. God is going to reveal himself for the first time to Moses. He's going to say, God is going to say, you want to know God? Here I am. Exodus 34. Six and seven. The Lord, the Lord, compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Great. I'll take a God like that. 
but God continues. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of their parents to the third and fourth generation. God tells Moses, you want to know my heart, Moses? I'm loving, I'm compassionate, I'm forgiving, I'm merciful. That's what I am. But don't go thinking for a moment that I don't take sin and evil seriously. The guilty will be punished, Moses. Oh, and friends, we have every reason to be afraid of that punishment. Because we're guilty before God. We have offended his glory. We have ignored his beauty. We have spurned his love. We deserve punishment. And yet, remember, God's love is his action to do good to those whom he delights in, even at great cost to himself. So God loves goodness and and justice, and, and he also loves sinners. So on the cross, God the Father punishes Jesus, his son, for our sin. That is, on the cross, God's love moves him to act against what opposes his goodness and justice. And on the cross, God's love moves to rescue sinners. God's love for goodness is upheld on the cross, and God's love for sinners is upheld on the cross. And, And Jesus, who's the center of it all, willingly takes on destruction so that the Father can destroy sin without destroying the sinner. So if Christ is in you, there is no more punishment to be paid. God won't punish the same sin twice. That would be unjust. Christian, you don't have to be afraid of God. God no longer stands as your executioner because Jesus already stood in your place. And he's not going to repeat the same judgment on you. God's no longer your executioner. He is now just your loving father. I love the words of of Jonathan Edwards. He He says, God can't hate your sin more than he loves his own son. God can't hate your sin more than he loves his own son. Oh, and he loves his son, and he loves you because you are the possession of his son if you've put your faith in Christ. Some of the most precious hymns to my soul were written by two Englishmen in the 18th century, John Newton and William Cooper. Newton, of course, you you, you probably know him, was the former slave ship captain who, who turned pastor, and he wrote the probably the most famous hymn in the English language, Amazing Grace. Newton was the pastor and counselor for his friend, William Cooper. Now, William Cooper was afflicted his whole life with deep 
dark depression. And as you read Cooper's letters to Newton, you meet a man who is utterly afraid that God will abandon him at the final judgment. Cooper lives his, almost his whole life as if he's hanging by a thread over the pit of God's judgment, and he's just waiting for it to snap. And he's going to be consumed by God's wrath. That's how he lives. His poetry, he's one of the most magnificent poets in the the English language. He's written tons of hymns that we've sung, many of them. And his poetry is heart-wrenching as it oscillates between incredible hope in what Christ has done and despair that, that at any moment God's love is going to be snuffed out by God's judgment and he's going to be consumed by God. No doubt, Cooper... Cooper was afflicted his, his whole life by severe physical ailments and, and, and certainly mental illness as well. But the tragedy of Cooper's life is that he never let the love of God for him drive out fear. Newton, his friend, pastor, counselor, on the other hand, had more reasons than any to fear God's judgment. Certainly, countless atrocities happened at the hand of this slave ship captain. Newton wasn't speaking when he wrote, Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. He wasn't speaking metaphorically. He believed it. Oh, but Newton swam in the ocean of God's love. And it gave him incredible confidence and joy in God. I I wish you could read the letters between Cooper and Newton, and you see this tough and tender man who's produced, although his past is worse than almost anyone in here. God had produced this loving, long-suffering, joyful, God-exalting, person in Newton and in in the way he cared for his friend Cooper, who was an incredibly difficult friend to have. But the difference between these men is that Newton believed fundamentally that God loved him and it transformed his life, whereas Cooper was always skeptical of God's love and fear ended up destroying Cooper both physically and mentally. Okay, so if you don't have to fear God's final judgment, what I want to ask you today is what what else can you fear? If you can stand before God in the day of judgment, okay, this serious, absolute, certain judgment, the righteous judge, the righteous and holy judge of the universe... Tell me, what else do you have to fear? All other fears are lesser in comparison to this. Do you hear God saying, if God is for me, who can be against me? But, but what do you fear? Are you afraid of people? I am. Are you consumed and de- debilitated by what others think of you? 
I wonder if they think I'm a bad spouse. I wonder if they think I'm a bad parent. What if they think I'm a boring preacher? I wonder if they don't think I belong. What if they don't think I'm a good enough musician to be part? Does my boss think I'm competent? Did they like my presentation? Why didn't anybody say anything afterwards? What if, what if those people in the church know how messed up my marriage is? What happens then? If God's love protects us from his own judgment, you don't need to fear others. God's love and his delight in you is not dependent on your parenting, on your marriage, on your work presentation, on your preaching, on your musicianship, on your popularity. God's love and delight in you is the bedrock that moves, that doesn't move, excuse me, regardless of all those things. Some of you are worried about your past. What if they know who I was and what I had done? What if this church encountered some of my old friends? <laughs> what if they reject me and lose respect for me? Some of us are afraid of the future. You may have a job that is always somewhat uncertain, dependent on the economy, never knowing if, if, your, if your future paychecks are going to be there. Maybe you, feel, you, you fear what, what will become of your children, and it consumes you. Some of you might fear never being married. Some of you might fear never having children. Or it just might be that you're fearful, like sometimes I am, that your life will never amount to more than the ordinary wake up, go to work, finish work, come home, eat dinner, watch TV, put the kids to bed, go to sleep, repeat. All fears and anxieties we have in this life pale in comparison to the appropriate fear we should have of God's final judgment. But God's love for us has compelled God the Father to already execute his judgment on his beloved son. And if that fear is removed, friends, we have no basis for any other fear in this life. That's what we call letting the gospel. Sometimes we talk about being gospel-centered. What we mean by that is letting the gospel inform that Jesus Christ died on the cross for you, inform all these little extra bits of your life, fear of men, fear of the past, fear of the future. Not that we don't have anxieties, because those happen, but that we let the gospel speak into that and remove the blow of fear so that we can have confidence before God. Point number two, God's love, oh, sorry. God's love frees us from hate. And it frees us to love God's family. God's love frees us from hate and frees us to love God's family. This is in verses four, uh, chapter, or, sorry, chapter four, verses 19 through 21. Read with me. 
We love because he first loved us. Whoever claims to love God yet hates a brother or sister is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother and sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. And he has given us this command. Anyone who loves God must also love their brother and sister. John's been here before, hasn't he? Uh, a few weeks ago, I talked about this very topic at length. And, 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 and you'll find this all throughout the, this, this letter. It's this. Perhaps the greatest indicator that you are a child of God is that you love the family of God in word and deed. So first, John starts with God's love, doesn't he, in, this, in, in verse 19? Love starts with God, and then it flows through us when he takes residence in our hearts. So when we experience God's love, when we understand ourselves to be the object of God's love, we begin to love what God loves. That's that spiritual heart transformation. So, right, we said this before, God's love is not static, it's a transformative love. It causes you to love and delight in the object of God's delight. And that's namely, God delights in his children. So friend, you cannot love God and hate his church. That's what he's saying. You can't love God and be indifferent about God's people. John says, how can you love God whom you haven't seen and not love God's children whom you have seen? Remember last week from verse 12? It is the children of God as they love one another. It's the church, okay, this church, as we love one another, that actually makes God uniquely visible in this age. Jesus isn't here right now, physically. You know, he's, he's ascended to heaven. And, and John wants to know, how, how does God show up here? He says, when my, when my children love one another. Do you want to people to encounter God in Rotherham? Let this be a jaw-dropping, loving, supernaturally loving community. I mean, it's just amazing to me. We often think, we often think of spirituality primarily as a private discipline, don't we? This is the way I thought of spirituality growing up my whole life. We, we primarily, primarily kind of, we, we take our spiritual barometer based on the kind of how we're doing reading the Bible or praying or memorizing scriptures or fasting or something like that. And of course, those are all important. In fact, if you don't do those, you're going to have no nourishment to share with others. But God never tells us, you can know if you're my child if you read your Bible every day. Don't get me wrong. Don't, don't go, if you take, if the application you get from this is, don't, I don't need to read my Bible, you've, you've misheard me, right? What I'm saying is, there's something about the communal aspect that is the core to understanding our spirituality. I want to maximize your view of the communal aspect of reflecting God. You can't reflect God isolated in an island with your Bible in the same way that you can reflect God in the community of Christ. 
Why? Because we don't worship a Unitarian God. We worship a triune God. One God who is three persons in eternity past. A God who is love. Okay, God says he is love. From eternity past. Implies that God by his nature is communal. He is one, but he relates to his persons in love. So, so we return, and we return, and we return to this idea of loving community in our sermons because it's how we reflect the community right in the Trinity itself. You can't do it on an island by yourself. Point number three. God's love frees us from burdensome rule-keeping, and it frees us to joyful obedience. God's love frees us from burdensome rule-keeping, and it frees us to joyful obedience. Let's read in chapter 5, verses 1 through 3. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves his child as well. This is how we know we love the children of God, by loving and carrying out his commands. In fact, this is love for God to keep his commands, and his commands are not burdensome. So John works in a circle here, doesn't he? You know you love God if, if you love his children, and it, you know if you, so you know you love God if you love his children, and you know you love his children if you love God and obey his commands. Works in a circle. But what does love what does love have to do with obedience to God, to his, God's commands? B- before we work that out, we need to know what John does not mean when he says you love because, simply because you obey. Sorry, sorry. Let me say that again. You need to know that John does not mean you love simply because you obey. What do I mean by that? A, a drill sergeant can o- or sorry, a, a, a soldier can obey his drill sergeant and hate his guts. You could obey your abusive father and despise him. You could keep every commandment of your scrupulous boss and loathe her, couldn't you? That is why verse 3 is so, so, so important to understanding what John means here. This is love for God, to keep his commands And his commands are not burdensome. What he's getting at is that true obedience to God cannot be separated from a deep-seated conviction that God loves me, and he delights in me, and he acts for my good. Therefore, you obey as a Christian precisely because you trust that God loves you and desires to bring about your good. This this has been a massive, transformative part in my life. My view of God, before I was 18 years old, or my view of God changed dramatically when I was 18. I thought, before 18 years old, I believed in the love of God. I would have told you, God loves me but I hated God's commands. 
You want to know why? Because I thought of God's commands as punishment. I believed that his call, I believed that God's command to sexual fulfillment in marriage alone was him being scrupulous with me. I thought God's prudishness about language I use and the entertainment I view was his harshness towards me. I thought his command to gather regularly with his people and love sacrificially was his being it was him being a, putting a burden on me. You see even my somewhat rare obedience and rule keeping was at its core rebellion against God because I viewed God as a cold, harsh master and not a loving father. I didn't fundamentally believe that God's commands were good for me, but were, were God's, in some way, punishment on me. My suffering in this world. Do you view God like this? Do you view his commands like this? God is not like the Pharisees. Jesus stands before the Pharisees in Luke 11, and he says this, you experts in the law, woe to you, because you load people down with burdens that they can hardly carry, and you yourselves will not lift a finger for them. No, no, no. Hear Jesus speaking on behalf of his Father to you. Come. Come. To me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. If you approach Christianity as if it it is a burdensome set of rules you must keep to please God, you have never understood God's love. God's commands are given for you to flourish. God's commands flow from his wisdom, and his wisdom is aimed at making you flourish and thrive. So often, even us as adults, we're like little children who throw a tantrum at our parents for not letting us play in the front garden, when in reality our parents are protecting us, and they are caring for us, and they are loving us because they know there's danger on the street. Our children have no big picture in mind, they just know that's where I want to play. What I'm saying, we're like the little children and we don't get it all. But we just need to have this foundational trust that God is good. And that he gives us commands that are good for us. Because they're designed for our flourishing. Oh, and this is so difficult, isn't it? When the larger culture tells us that God's commands are harsh or worse, evil, have you ever found yourself apologizing for God? I have. Resist the temptation to apologize for God's word, 
when the culture presses in on you. To be embarrassed at what God has commanded shows that at our core we really don't believe in God's love. As if our culture has a better grasp of good than God. There's one more thing here in this last section. God's commands aren't burdensome, not only because they're aimed at our good, but also because he's given us the ability and power to obey them. We can't do it on our own. Verse four, notice verse four starts with the word for. Why are God's commands not burdensome? Because everyone born of God overcomes the world. The new birth, the new nature God has given you by the Spirit has caused you to overcome the world. Okay, the word world here is not this big bad thing out there, stay away from the world. It's what he defined in chapter 2 as the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of possessions. Friends, what I, what I said before is you don't have to walk out your front door to find the world. It's right here. We don't have to leave this building to, to find the world. What he's saying is the Spirit has been given to you so that you will overcome the world, which is the lustful cravings of the flesh that you don't have to go very far to find. John says, you have overcome the worldly inclinations inclinations that dwell inside of you. Satan does not have a hold on your heart anymore. God does. And, And the victory over this sinful cravings of your old self is manifested in your enduring faith, the text says. Well, as we close, after I was done catching that slimy, smelly, convulsing fish, my grandpa said, great, throw it back in the water. What? You know, as the flish, as the flish, as the fish was sitting there flapping away in, in the grass, I could have said, fish, just start swimming. I command you to swim. The fish may be hardwired to swim, but on grass, it's utter foolishness. But when I threw that fish back in the water, guess what? I didn't have to command it to swim. What do you think it did? You can say it. I don't hear it. You can say it. It swam away. Just making sure you're all there. It just did it because by nature, that's what fish do in the water. When we swim in the ocean of God's love, that is, when we trust God's love, when we experience God's love, when we delight in God's love, his love by nature will flow out of us. It produces confidence and removes fear. It produces love for God's family, for others, and removes hate. It produces joyful obedience and removes slavish rule-keeping. 
I could say tonight, don't fear. Love one another. Obey God. All, all those commands are found in Scripture. They're good. All of them are true. But, but what I want you to get is that further upstream from those commands is a heart who trusts and delights in the love of God for them, no matter what you feel, no matter what circumstance you're in, no matter what temptation you're experiencing. Revel in the love of God for you. 